This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 26, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Modern politics seems to focus inordinately on national mission, national purpose, national goals. But if history is any guide, the view of government as a crusader on behalf of a might-makes-right America gives rise to some nasty side effects. Anthony Comegna is assistant editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org. We spoke last week. The, the candidacy of Donald Trump has, in a lot of ways, legitimized some figures and, and sets of ideas that, in very short memory, uh, were, to, to borrow a term, deplorable. <laughs> and he uh, has, in a way, made these people respectable, not through the, the power of the ideas themselves, but by sort of nodding to them and saying, hey, the things that I'm saying dovetail very nicely with the things that you're saying. Yeah, it's been said many times that Donald Trump is sort of a blank canvas and people project onto him whatever they would like to see. Which is a great trick if you're a politician, right? (laughs) Right. Politicians have historically done that. Absolutely. And, you know, it's the perfect... uh, candidacy, essentially, for the rise of cultural nationalism to happen. Um, so, you know, I, uh, on a certain radio show uh, yesterday, I heard a guest saying that uh, Trump wants to make America young again. Now, they were talking about the, the Hillary health problems. Uh, but, you know, the, the idea of making America young again means much more to the alt-right, if you want to isolate the alt-right, or to the Trumpetarians, as I like to call them, um, libertarians supporting Donald Trump, uh, and certainly to the rank-and-file Republicans. uh, The idea of making America young again does not simply mean healthy. Um, If they wanted that, they would probably go for Gary Johnson. Uh, Nobody's healthier than him. Uh, but making America young again in this context, I think, means uh, a, a revival of these almost mythological ideals that America is supposed to live up to in these people's minds. Uh, it stretches all the way back to the Puritan period and even a bit before then when Englishmen were considering colonizing the continent. Um, Bacon had this vision of a new Atlantis in America. Um, to the pilgrims, they were settling New Jerusalem, and the Indians and the British vagabonds who came on their ships with them were the new Canaanites who were going to be displaced by New Israel. Uh, and the, the uh, North American continent would be the beacon for all mankind. It would be God's city on a hill, uh, showing the rest of the world what the future would look like. And as time went on, in the 19th century, this idea became what we know as Manifest Destiny. Now, Manifest Destiny uh, really emerged out of what's called the Young America movement. Young America was a a specifically uh, uh, cabal-like attempt to um, create an American national culture. And I say that because there was actually a small group of literary critics and writers and publishers in New York City led by a guy named Everett Duckink um, and novelist Cornelius Matthews. Matthews actually coined the term Young America. Um, their idea was we need to create an authentic American national literature, uh, mainly so that we can proliferate uh, our books and publications throughout the globe and compete with the British. 
If American ideas could compete in an open field with British ideas, uh, the British Empire would eventually fall and the United States would rise to replace it as the, the global premier power. Um, so Duck Inc. and his group uh, published American authors like Walt Whitman, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Herman Melville, uh, all sorts of others that are famous from the period. Um, for several decades, about 20 years, this uh, group was active in one form or another. And they really did create an authentic American national culture. All their, all their authors, for the most part, are canon now. Um, but the thinking was the British Empire is the world's foremost government. It's the largest state, the most powerful government that has ever existed. It's the richest, the wealthiest, the most prestigious. It has 25% of the land surface of the globe. It has the Royal Navy everywhere. Um, other nations bend at Queen Victoria's will, uh, and she rules over hundreds and hundreds of millions. And to them, that was uh, retrograde, a uh, retrograde force in history, and that the United States should, must, and would rise to counter it. So the thinking of young Americans was if we focus on what makes the United States distinct from other nations, uh, we will more clearly chart that course toward futurity. John L. O'Sullivan, who coined the term um, manifest destiny, was another one of these major publishers. In his Democratic Review, he called the U.S. the great nation of futurity. Um, <clears throat> so. What young Americans did over the decades of the 1830s and 1840s was they tried to revolutionize American political culture, culture generally, and they were pretty successful at it. They, they whipped up an awful lot of enthusiasm among the populace. They inspired people very deeply. Uh, like I said, so many of their authors are considered canon now. They really did create an authentic American national culture, but in doing so, they lent so much credence to this idea of historical mission uh, that, the, that it became an almost, uh, after, almost an afterthought. It was just assumed on the part of the populace, both Whig and Democrats. This was not a politically divisive thing so much. It was just assumed that the United States would indeed be this great nation of futurity and that we had to go out on the world stage and fight the future's battles. Uh, because if we didn't, we might not have one, and Queen Victoria would take over the entire planet. And eventually, it actually becomes the Russians. The Russians are, are a potential threat. Tsardom would take over the, the planet. Well, we, of course, you know, saw the resurgence of that in the last hundred or so years. What happened in their generation was that here you have all these youthful, hopeful young Americans who, who think and want the very best for their country and for the, their fellow beings. So many of them in the first generation were anti-slavery even. They extended uh, the principles of American universalism, democracy, republicanism, equality, all the way down to the slave. Uh, and the problem was that in their political activities, they ended up supporting people like James K. Polk mainly because he was an annex, uh, expansionist. He wanted Texas annexed, and during his election it was. So he comes into office with Texas annexed, and he concocts a war with Mexico in order to get uh, territory on the Pacific. It was clearly a concocted war. Everybody uh, believes that now, I, I think. Everybody would say that. Well, it was, was pretty clear. He knew the Mexicans would fire on U.S. soldiers. Uh, and in, in the course of the war, he steals half of Mexico, and slavery gets extended 
far across the continent uh, in places where people like Jefferson thought it should never be. And the young Americans are, for the most part, completely disenchanted. Uh, they, they leave the Polk administration with no hopes for political effort in the future. Uh, and they think that the project of young America is basically dead. And they were, they were right. So uh, the people who rise to replace them, both in the cultural movement and in politics, are referred to by historians as young America too. Now, these people took the bright, hopeful uh, ideology, the pro-American ideology of the first generation, and they grafted it onto this friendliness toward power. They expanded it to say America is not only uh, the force for futurity and goodness in, in man's you know, forthcoming history, um, but it is always good, and using American power is a good thing. Uh, ipso facto. So, so it's, it's sort of an American exceptionalism? Yeah, absolutely, to the core. And while the first generation of young Americans thought that there was plenty wrong still with America, uh, young America too thought it doesn't really matter. It, we have the power. We need to use it somehow. And in fact, uh, if we serve corporate interests, railroad interests, development interests of all kinds, we can make this a great nation of futurity even faster, right? It's what William Leggett, the Locofoco, would have called the force pump method of development. Uh, when you force water uphill, yeah, you can get the water uphill. You can get it to defy nature and, and run uphill, but it takes a lot of energy to do that. There's dead weight loss. Um, so it's, a, it's an unnatural and unhealthy method of developing. But Young America too, um, they helped corporations proliferate across the country. They gave away massive land grants to railroads, helped you know, start the campaigns to exterminate the Plains Indians. Um, they tried to overthrow governments in Central America. And eventually, many of them were completely on board for the Civil War. Uh, these were people who were friendly to national power. And it was basically because of a, a full generation of hopeful, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, du you know, dupes, as I call them in my dissertation, the dupes of hope forever, the locofocos and young Americans. They thought so strongly that America was always a force for good that they gave away the entire game to these people who thought we just need to use the power. So it when you talk about American power and uh, this ideal that eventually took root, that America using its power is almost, it's almost like might makes right. Yeah, yeah. That the idea that, well, we have the power uh, and therefore, uh, we, and we can do good with it and we shouldn't even consider the possibility that we could do a lot of bad with it as well. Mm -hmm. it, it sort of goes back to the Puritans, Calvinist doctrine of being elect, uh, that the proof of your being one of God's elect is your wealth and your prosperity, your work ethic. That all shows that you're elect. Um, so American power in the 1850s, the fact that we were so quickly creeping up on Great Britain, uh, our military strength perhaps hadn't been tested quite so fully, but development was incredibly rapid all around the country 
population was spiraling, immigration was massive, uh, and it did look like the United States was going to, in a generation or two, surpass Great Britain. Now, it took maybe three or four generations. It took a devastating world war that almost destroyed Western civilization. Uh, but the U.S. did come out ahead of Great Britain in the end. The problem is in thinking that whatever you do to accomplish that will be justified by it by itself. Compare that with that, that attitude uh, that took root. Compare that with the attitude that I think a lot of modern libertarians have, which is simply the purpose of a nation. And I hear echoes of Woodrow Wilson even in uh, that idea of national purpose, national direction. Uh, compare that with the, the idea of most libertarians, which is the purpose of a nation are the purposes that individuals give themselves. Hmm. Yeah. You know, the, well, you, you mentioned Wilson and, the, of course, the progressives took this very young America mindset from, you know, these, the young Americans were their grandparents and their parents. Uh, you know, young America I would have been the progressives' grandparents. Young America II would have been their parents. So their parents instructed them in this creed and then the progressives have this millennial vision to go and fulfill it, final it. And that's what they think, people like John Dewey think that World War One is, as Rothbard said, it's World, uh, World War I is fulfillment for the intellectuals. It really was. Uh, and, you know, every time I hear modern libertarians sort of substitute the state, uh, the nation, Donald Trump or whoever it might be, substitute those people for meaning-making forces in their own lives. It, it makes me cringe. If, if libertarians stop looking at themselves as individuals first and foremost who define themselves, give themselves existential value, and if they start letting political institutions or, good God, political candidates give them existential value, then we'll lose the, the sense of ourselves as individuals. If you lose the sense of yourself as an individual and you let outside forces define and control and shape your life, I don't see how you can hold on to libertarianism. How could you possibly hold on to that set of ideas if you start to let your, your, you know, the definition of yourself uh, slip away like that and be defined by collective entities? That's where the young Americans went wrong. Anthony Kamegna is assistant editor for Intellectual History at Libertarianism.org. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.